Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the increasingly occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April 26, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terrier, professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Two excellent guests this week. Leo Beletsky is a professor of law and health sciences and the faculty director of the Health Injustice Action Lab at Northeastern University School of Law. He holds a joint appointment with the Bouvet College of Health Sciences there. He has broad expertise and an enviable research and publication record in the public health impact of laws and their enforcement, with special focus on drug overdose, infectious disease transmission, and the role of the criminal justice system as a structural determinant of health. Regular listeners to the pod will recognize Leo's vocalizations from his numerous visits here, including a couple when he guest hosted. So a huge welcome back, Leo. Thanks so much for having me back, Nick. And Jennifer Oliver is an associate professor at West Virginia University in the College of Law and the School of Public Health. This spring, she has been a visiting research scholar at the Petrie Floam Center at Harvard Law School. In the fall, she'll be joining the faculty at Seton Hall Law School, and I think all of her friends will be grateful when she finally has a single and stable email address again. At West Virginia, she taught torts, evidence, and public health courses, and directed the Veterans Advocacy Clinic. Her work has been published by or is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal, Northwestern University Law Review, Ohio State Law Journal, North Carolina Law Review, and the George Mason Law Review show off. Welcome to the pod, Jen. Thank you for having me, Nick. We're going to run through some of the current topics in the opioid overdose epidemic space and uh, into addictions probably more generally. Let's start by bringing everybody up to date in what's going on with prescription drug monitoring programs uh, here and after called PDMPs. Where do you start with PDMPs? folks. I mean, I guess uh, while we are all earnestly searching for the silver bullet for the opioid overdose crisis, the PDMP has surfaced as, I think, the, the rubber bullet of the crisis. It tends to be fired randomly into crowds with unintended consequences. What's your, what's your current take uh, on PDMPs, Leo? Well, I think as a former military police person, perhaps Jen is uh, more equipped to opine on the use of rubber bullets and so forth. But I, just to set the stage, I think it's worth mentioning kind of where we are in the trajectory of our, whatever you want to call it, opioid epidemic is a term that I really don't like. Uh, overdose crisis is is the my preferred term. And I feel like, you know, since our audience is mostly lawyers, they, they will forgive me for being pedantic with the language. But where we are is essentially in the third wave of this crisis. I think we've kind of talked about this before, but we moved on from being focused on primarily on opioid analgesics. So medications like Oxycontin as being their primary drivers of overdoses to then heroin being implicated in a rising number of overdose deaths. And more recently, since about 2014, we've seen the stratospheric rise in overdoses involving fentanyl and other uh, illicitly manufactured synthetic analogs of opioids. And the reason why I think this is important to mention as context is that the crisis has morphed, it has shifted, and, and that is something that I think highlights not just 
sort of the dynamic nature of drug markets and sort of the whack-a-mole situation with sort of restricting access to one drug and people moving on to the other. But also, you know, if we look, if we take the population perspective and think of the population or the kind of the community level being our target sort of patient, you know, we really have mismanaged the patient. So the, the, the situation has gotten worse and remedies that we've thrown at the problem are probably have at least least not been effective. And sometimes the effects that we've seen are iatrogenic in the sense that we've probably caused more harm than good. And I think that's the context for the discussion of prescription drug monitoring programs, because these programs were really billed for about a decade and even longer, but, you know, because they did back quite some time. But in the context of the crisis, they really became very popular and they were billed as an effective response. And that just hasn't been borne out by the facts. Jenna's done some really great work on this issue as well. So perhaps she will want to um, add her perspective here too. Well, I agree with everything that Leo said. And we'll add that not only is the research on PDMP effectiveness very disappointing, there is some research that definitely indicates that this sort of fast taper patient abandonment phenomenon, you know, obviously has led to worse outcomes for patients. And when I think about PDMPs, I sort of, I call them law enforcement tools dressed up in sort of soothing public health rhetoric, um, because that's sort of how they were sold on the backs of these large federal grants. And um, the crisis is sort of, again, we see people giving up a tremendous amount of private, very sensitive information here, believing that these are public health tools uh, when they were largely pushed by law enforcement agencies. The other thing I would note about PDMPs and why I got very interested is not only do do almost all the states have them now? Missouri's kind of an outlier, but at least 49 states have robust PDMPs, whereas you saw about 13 states in 2000. They're also collecting more and more and more information every day. We went from in the, uh, the early days of PDMPs, just collecting Schedule II drugs. Now we're up to two through five in the majority of states. In 2018, Nebraska went to all prescriptions, all RXs dispensed in the state. So they're collecting a tremendous amount of information about a lot of people that is highly sensitive and is not necessarily oriented to even addressing Schedule II substances or any sort of use disorder or doctor diversion. So we've seen the overdose rates increase over time in all jurisdictions. Death rates are up, prescribing is way down, and the PDMPs do not seem to have had their operable public health effect. Both of you know my collaborator, Isla Haas, and we were meeting the other day in which we were discussing some of the, the opioid crises' major challenges. And I paraphrase, but she said something like, uh, you know, in, in that context, who wouldn't want the easy job of just writing the PDMP statute? And I, I think that's that's always been one of the issues with PDMPs. It's, it's the relatively easy fix. And I guess the other and more cynical take is that as long as overprescribing is the only thing we can or want to solve, then overprescribing will remain as the identified problem. Absolutely. I think I think this is a critical point. I think that, you know, when, when you have a public health or any public policy problem, for that matter, the first task is to identify and diagnose the problem. You know, what what is the issue, uh, characterizing the issue using data, trying to understand, you know, sort of what the proximate and root causes of the problem uh, may be. And, and in many ways, PDMPs are a result of an incomplete or incorrect analysis of what, you know, this overdose crisis is about. 
about. I think we've had a conversation on here before about kind of the structural drivers, uh, whether there are, um, whether it's the healthcare stupid, as, as you've phrased it, Nick, or whether it's uh, economic and social and sort of, you know, major structural fissures within American society that are, that are driving this problem. And in, in, in a way, the crisis is really symptomatic of these underlying issues. But for many years, up until about, you know, five or six years ago, really, this was this was characterized as a prescription drug problem, the crisis in prescription drug overprescribing and in, in uh, opioid overprescribing. And within that context, the sort of the knee jerk response, the understandable, rational sort of response among policymakers is to say, okay, um, we're, we need to clamp down on, on these medications and kind of dial it back. Overprescribing in itself is a term that begets a policy response focused on reducing prescribing. I have a lot of issues with that term because we have, we certainly have overutilization of opioids and that that's much harder to say than overprescribing. We also have overutilization of many other medications like benzodiazepines, antidepressants, you name it, a class, you know, uh, antibiotics. Americans just, you know, use way more drugs per capita than than many pure nations. And then we also have underprescribing of opioids in many spaces. One such space is in treatment of opioid use disorder, where buprenorphine and methadone are the best sort of gold standard tools that we have. We vastly underutilize them. And so when you start talking about overprescribing and the fact that you know pharmaceutical companies are venal and corrupt and uh, providers are also venal or corrupt or just naive at best, that conversation then creates a cognitive dissonance when you turn around and you say, well, we need to be prescribing more of these other drugs. But within that context, with this framing of prescribing, prescription drug monitoring programs become a, a sort of the go-to solution because what they are, are basically, you know, kind of a surveillance and control tool to track overprescribing or track prescribing and dispensing of these medications and to highlight, flag, and sort of in a targeted way address sort of leaks in that controlled system. You know, our controlled substance system is, is basically this idea that we you know keep tabs on these medications. And so Jen had mentioned that the system can create perverse incentives for patient abandonment and for kind of punitive responses. And perhaps she'd want to elaborate on, on how that, that actually works works. You've done surveys yourself, Leo, and other researchers have on what doctors' responses have been to the threat of two things that law enforcement can do and public health can't. Law enforcement can revoke their DA license and, of course, charge them with a crime. So law enforcement has authority over medicine in a way that public health never does or never will. So those kinds of threats affect doctors' behavior. Chronic pain patients are difficult to treat, especially with evidence-based methods. Um, and many times it's much easier to abandon a patient, unfortunately, instead of do an evidence-based taper uh, and holistic services and harm reduction techniques so that the doctor can avoid um, loss of livelihood, frankly, and potentially criminal penalties. So you get this tension where the public health folks are over here saying, please do this. It's evidence-based. We've been through this before. Matt's the gold standard, you know, Medicaid-assisted treatment. You've got to taper responsibly and reasonably. Um, 
um, these folks got these medicines legitimately in that context. And that, that all of those rational voices are in competition now because of the PDMP scenario with law enforcement surveillance that can have an immediate impact on doctors and their families and their livelihood. So of course, those incentives are in place. And we doctors have been fairly honest about the effect that that's had on them. And we've compounded that now by adding, of course, secretive algorithms layered on top of this PDMP data that make it even easier for doctors to make sort of quick decisions when they see a red flag pop up about an individual and things like that. So on top of all of these other concerns, we're now making it easier and easier for doctors just not to prescribe or to take the time to uh, do a thorough assessment of the individual pain patient to see where they're at. So these are, I'm, I'm assuming you're you're referring, Jen, to these new opioid scores that are, are being generated by, by analytics engines. Yeah, and they're calling them different things, but the most popular software provider calls them NARCs scores. And um, we've looked through some of the manuals that are you know available online, um, and they list some of the criteria, like the milligram dosage of uh, opioids, number of prescribers, different pharmacy options. But there's a lot of theories out there about what else goes into this. Things like sex and gender, childhood ACE factors, sort of, have you been through trauma before? They also heighten your NARC score uh, if you have overlapping prescription use that has nothing to do with pain, um, such as mental health treatments and things like that. So it's it's we re- it's a black box. We don't exactly know how they're generating these three-digit scores. But um, once you're flagged and you get that red flag up on your PDMP saying you're in the danger zone, so to speak, that really incentivizes a physician not to prescribe. And goodness knows, as you said before, where the data ends up uh, as well. And I, I guess it also, I mean, one of the things that this epidemic has highlighted are problems with our healthcare system. And one of our persistent uh, healthcare problems is the way it attracts rent seekers. And so PDMP is now a an industry. And if you look at the latest sort of grants that are being offered by the federal government with some of the, the support funds and so on, Front and center are PDMP grants, whereas, you know, from right from the beginning of, of today's pod, Leo, uh, when you said, you know, that's two phases back, right? We also now have a, a PDMP interoperability problem because not all PDMPs are talking to each other, although I guess that that uh, little frustration might might be one of the few privacy checks on this whole industry. There you may have read that the uh, Department of Justice's Bureau of Justice Assistance and the CDC are insisting that PDMPs should use the, what's called the RX Check Hub, whereas most of the states are using a private vendor uh, called APRIS. And uh, so uh, we have a nice little fight that's going on there. The other piece that I thought might be worth sort of moving on to here away. Please, God, let us leave PDMPs. But we're seeing other prescribing disincentives. Uh, A recent one I picked up on is um, a Michigan statute uh, has required the Michigan HHS to post um, an opioid advance directive on its website. And it's essentially you sign a, a blanket refusal for opioids. And there are some exceptions. You know, if you're uh, receiving opioids for substance use tr- uh, disorder treatment, if you're in hospice, if it's an emergency. But all of those questions will usually involve interpretation and maybe delays. And so 
I, I just think it, it maybe is another sort of, you know, part of our opioid phobic approach to what's a chronic disease and a public health problem. And I'm not sure these kinds of anti-prescribing pieces really are that helpful at this point. Well, I agree with that. And I think it's very interesting. Michigan, I guess, is the seventh state that has enacted a advanced directive. West Virginia, where I live, also has one. And, you know, these things would only be necessary in a situation where you weren't able to consent in real time. So presumably something has gone wrong and attacking the acute care treatment system where um, opioids have, have definitely been far less problematic and are many practitioners will tell you are, are the best treatment in those circumstances is really interesting to me. Uh, but I do agree it's part of the hysteria. It goes back to what Leo already said. It's addressing a, a presumed or narrative problem that, that it, to the extent it existed is we're far past that now um, when we're talking about who is suffering use disorder and dying. So I also found the uh, the Michigan Advanced Directive very interesting given the current problem and the epidemiology data that we have. It's also a, a, a function of our love of exceptionalism. There you go. Right? I mean, how, yes. how many how many other drugs or treatments are we going to have specific advanced directives for? That's right. Right. I think also this, uh, this hooks into a news item that should be noted and maybe of interest to your listeners, which is that just this week, the CD uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a clarification building on its own guideline from uh, 2016. They issued a guideline that basically said, you know, opioids should be used with caution. Large doses of opioids are risky and, you know, they shouldn't be sort of used willy-nilly and, and should not be used as widely as they have been in, in chronic care, chronic pain care setting. What ended up happening is in the context of opioid panic and sort of fueled by what I called false prophets who, you know, basically raised the banner of getting rid of opioids as the solution. What ended up happening is that states took this guideline and you, you both know and you, many of your listeners know the limitations of, of guidelines in general, but this particular one had a lot of caveats and, and basically people boiled it down to the idea that, you know, really need, shouldn't be prescribing opioids and that uh, if, if there are patients who are currently on opioids, we need to taper them down. And this is where you get into the situations that Jen referred to, in, including patient abandonment or involuntary tapers. And basically what this guideline created a bunch of unintended consequences, including things like policies on the state level to limit opioid prescribing to three days or seven days. And, you know, a bunch of other kind of choice architecture interventions designed to minimize or if not completely eliminate opioid prescribing. The problem is that in medicine, first of all, you know, again, as, as you said, Nick, we're getting to really up, sort of absurd exceptionalism where there's now state level policies limiting initial pres prescriptions for medications across the board. And that may well be warranted for some number of patients. But if you look at the data, there's a great JAMA piece, you know, looking at sort of patient needs for opioids post-op. And yeah, probably the vast majority of people will be fine with, you know, a three-day prescription. There are, however, many patients who can also, who, who need, you know, pain care for a, a much more extended 
extended period of time, uh, up to 14 or 17 days for complicated surgeries like C-sections or hysterectomies, for example. And creating this framework really hurts those patients because in order to get a refill, you know, based on our sort of scheduling system, which is a subject of another 12 podcast, perhaps we can talk about the absurdity of the scheduling system. But for Schedule 2 substances, getting a refill for a medication means that you have to go see your provider in person. And then you have to pick up that prescription in person at a pharmacy and show your ID. And so if you have a patient who is in a lot of pain post-op and they need a refill for, you know, they only got an initial prescription for three days, they would need to travel to see their provider and then travel to a pharmacy to fill that prescription, which is not just inhumane, but likely would worsen their health status. And so it just, you know, it really doesn't make sense to have a a state policy of that sort. And particularly not in rural areas where some people are traveling further and further now as less and less providers are willing to even prescribe these medications. So you can have someone doing two, three, four hour round trips in rural West Virginia uh, while they're working a day job, like Leo said, um, with a particular condition where they do need a, a longer script. And I also just note that hysterectomy is the most common surgical procedure in the United States. So it can be broad based where folks with sort of more narrow, more complicated issues, but um, the provider should be making that decision. So I think the bottom line here is that, you know, in many in many ways, this is a discussion about public policy design and metrics. If we're measuring success as, as many public policy and sort of quote unquote experts on this topic have operationally in terms of prescriptions written and sort of median dosage of opioids being prescribed in the United States, uh, our president actually just the other day at the RX summit sort of boasted about the metrics of success precisely on those points. So he mentioned that, you know, as a result of these public policy ideas, the number of prescriptions and the overall sort of burden of opioid prescribing has substantially fallen by about uh, up to 40% in the last uh, five years or so. However, those are not meaningful patient well-being metrics, and they're not meaningful public health metrics, because at the same time as prescriptions have fallen, the number of fatal and non-fatal overdose events has actually risen substantially. And, and there's, you know, some of the hardest hit states like West Virginia has seen this in the most acute way. And so, you know, we just need to be very deliberate and careful about how we define the metrics of success. And that's something that actually in the PDMP literature has been really interesting. In, in my recent article, I looked at PDMP studies and the vast majority of them define success precisely in, you know, how are we doing in reducing prescribing? And, you know, the overwhelming evidence is that, yes, PDMPs, uh, PDMP policies are maybe not causally, but are correlated with reduced prescribing. But if you look at the actual outcome of interest, which is overdose events, the literature is much more mixed. Let's turn from an area where the legal system is essentially prescribing a solution, in quotes, to uh, the overdose uh, epidemic with increasingly diminishing returns 
to an area where uh, the legal system actually appears to be a barrier to what appear to be evidence-based public health approaches. And I'm thinking, obviously, Leo, about uh, safe injection facilities and syringe exchange programs. Uh, can you bring us up to date a little bit on where we are on SEPs and then on SIFs and, and the issues as you see them? Like you said, laws and law enforcement has been a major barrier in allowing harm reduction programs, which are probably some of the most evidence-driven approaches to reduce harms associated with opioid use. These systems have been a major barrier for implementation for a long time. I mean, throughout the you know 20, 30 year history. And interestingly, you would think you would expect perhaps, you know, maybe naively that in a context of a crisis, you know, is that famous quote about not letting a crisis go to waste, that you would see those barriers go away or at least substantially, you know, be reduced. And and that has happened to a certain degree. So more, more and more states are authorizing syringe exchange programs. But even with syringe exchange programs, which are far less controversial than supervised consumption facilities or safe injection facilities, there are currently only 29 states that authorize syringe exchange expressly. So that's, you know, just over half of US states have state laws on the books that do, you know, very sensible things like take syringe syringes out of their Controlled Substances Acts um, as paraphernalia and so forth. So, so there are still substantial sort of formal legal barriers. And even in states that have these programs running above ground and have authorized them formally, even in those places, law enforcement practice and community sort of opposition uh, sort of through ordinances and other legal tools continues to pose huge barriers. So, uh, you know, for example, in, in Orange County, California, the syringe exchange has been shut down for almost a year now because the local county government has blamed the syringe exchange for increasing syringe litter in the community, which is which is really uh, paradoxical because that same county has barred the syringe exchange from operating more than three hours a week. And so what happens is, you know, people go to the syringe exchange, they get syringes, and then because there is no syringe exchange, some of those syringes end up being discarded. Uh, and, and then the sort of the blame comes on the syringe exchange for not <laughs> operating sufficient capacity all the while, um, you know, it's really the government, uh, uh, the ordinances and the permitting system that has kept it, you know, very limited. In a particular instance of the safe consumption or safe injection facilities, you, you know, you, what you see is kind of the next level of retrograde policy where the federal government has actively opposed the introduction of these very, you know, solidly supported uh, an empirical level these facilities in the U.S. So uh, as your listeners may know, there are a number of U.S. jurisdictions, uh, including San Francisco, Philadelphia, Denver, California, that have sort of made uh, uh, Baltimore, that have made substantial progress in sort of thinking through and planning, uh, Seattle also planning the uh, to open safe injection facilities. But the feds have expressly threatened these jurisdictions with enforcement. And in Philadelphia, this has gone further where the U.S. attorney McSwain has filed for a preliminary injunction to stop the opening and opera 
creation of a safe injection facility. Leo, do you think this is an opioid-specific issue, or is this part of a more general misalignment between current federal and state drug policy? Uh, This is not an opioid issue, and, and it isn't just about the misalignment between state and local policy. I think it's a misalignment in drug policy in general, where evidence has been, it, you know, it's as, it has long been a province of alternative facts, even before that coin, you know, that term was coined. And we have resorted for a long time to allowing people who are really not experts on substance use and addiction um, in driving policy and practice in the space. So specifically, you know, the idea that a federal prosecutor is in charge of thinking about what interventions we need to deploy to address an overdose crisis is kind of absurd. And if you listen to those prosecutors, they oftentimes, they they will deploy mischaracterized descriptions of what the evidence says on these issues. So with safe injection facilities, there's reams and reams of evidence from a number of international settings. And a lot of times when this is discussed, the prosecutors basically, you know, will state facts about those international experiences that are just not borne out by the evidence. What do you think the end game is here? Is it just going to be driving everything underground? Or do you think there may be some breakthrough litigation. I mean, there's this uh, litigation going on in Philadelphia with the um, the nonprofit Safe House and so on. Um, I think they're even using the uh, RIFRA, aren't they? In the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or something I read. They are. Uh, how, how do you see this developing? First of all, there are already a number of underground facilities operating in the U.S. The you know progress on harm reduction in the U.S. and elsewhere has always been one where on the ground activist action drives policy, not vice versa. You know, this was the case with syringe exchange, which for many years was operating illegally or kind of in a gray area and eventually policy in some places caught up and and some places did not. And some of that resulted in litigation, but much, much of it was just kind of changes in the court of public opinion about, you know, whether these approaches are sensible and sound. I think probably a similar pattern will occur here. And the Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia litigation is is uh, one of those steps or phases. I think that even if the nonprofit safe house is not able to prevail in court, the actual exposure and opportunity to present the evidence and to mobilize various stakeholder groups in support of the litigation will help to galvanize these groups and organize them to highlight the fact that this is you know, evidence-based public health policy and that these retrograde laws and law enforcement structures stand in a way. I agree with Leo. And I and I do think if you look at sort of um, the Vancouver example, um, what he was referring to is, you know, you have folks who use sub, uh, you know illicit substances helping other folks in this sort of quasi gray or even illegal, um, you know, these exchanges and doing um, SEPs and um, the government sort of finally caved into that. So it was definitely local action um, that created the movement with our neighbors up north. And I'd highlight that for all we know, no one has ever died in a SEP ever. And that's just an incredible statistic. So it certainly deserves more attention. I appreciate you talking to to us about it on this podcast. And I would just 
also add that law enforcement is definitely doubling down across the board, even when they went along with some um, public health approaches at the front end of this crisis, uh, sort of like Good Samaritan laws and things like that. Those things have now been succumbed by charging people not any longer with misdemeanor paraphernalia possession, but with drug-induced homicides and threatening people that way. So if you thought folks were disincentivized to call for help um, when they might face a misdemeanor possession or paraphernalia charge, they're certainly incredibly disincentivized to call for help, you know, if they might be facing a a, a homicide or first-degree murder or even a capital charge in some jurisdictions. So unfortunately, it seems like we've kind of taken two steps back here on both the federal and local law enforcement front and really fighting hard against these evidence-based public health strategies. And on that positive note from Jen, that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Professors Beletsky and Oliver. Uh, for joining me today. Uh, You can find them. Well, let's see. They're both active on Twitter, very active. So you can find Leo at at Leo Beletsky, L-E-O-B-E-L-E-T-S-K-Y. And Jen is at Jen D. Oliver, J-E-N-N-D-O-L-I-V-A. Thank you so much. That was really interesting stuff. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Show notes, of course, will be at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 